Welcome to C-Suite Radio. The Open Mic Podcast is brought to you by the Cheap Seat Entertainment Network. Holy heartbeat! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. Happy Saturday to you. Welcome into a brand new edition of the Open Mic Podcast. Dropping bombs on you on this beautiful Bay Area Saturday. On the show today, actor Robert Lasardo is on the podcast. The name may not sound super familiar. However, you would recognize him if you saw him. He has had such amazing roles. He plays a really good bad guy. And in today's conversation, we're going to talk about good versus evil, how he approaches these roles and avoids the topic of type typecasting and makes each character individual and unique. He's covered head to toe in tattoos and he has been on weeds. He has been on nip tuck. I mean, NCIS, the list goes on and on. He has over 400 IMDb movie credits to his title. And we're going to talk about all of that and much more. Robert, welcome into the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Oh, thank you, Brett. It's It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, we have a lot to talk about. I mean, my goodness, I feel like my notes are just pages and pages long. But the first thing that I want to tackle, and I've been asking a lot of the celebrities and actors that I've had on recently, what does the state of the industry look like for you as an actor? Not necessarily one who is in a lot of major motion picture films, studio films, but also on the independent circuit as well. I know there is... A lot of information out there about when we can go back to work, if we can go back. But I would love to have you share your insight and thoughts on that, Robert, if you could. Yeah, uh, what I've observed, Brett, is that for me at least, uh, within the last, uh, let's see, four months, since February, let's say, uh, it's been fertile ground to, um, in terms of opportunity, despite what the circumstance suggests, and I'll, I'll be specific. I think it was in February, um, there was a work order for me to go to Las Vegas to start on a production there, a film called Bloodthirst, a, a horror film, a, a, a movie about vampires and a, this kind of vampire apocalypse type situation. Uh, and so I got on the plane despite the warnings and, you know, the, the, the peril that I would face ultimately by doing that, you know, when my friends were saying, what are you doing? Where, where are you going? You're on a plane? I go, yeah, I'm going to Las Vegas. Uh, there's a movie that we're filming there. And they were shocked because, you know, at that point, you, the news had, you know, been fresh in everybody's mind and consciousness about, you know, this potential enemy that had suddenly showed up in the form of this virus and how deadly and lethal it was. And there was so much uh, unknown about it that I think people were frightened about what they did not understand and what the, the rumors and theories suggested about this, you know, this, this monstrous fate, potential fatality if you even walked outside your door. So for anyone to hear from me that I was getting on a plane and going to do a movie made no sense, given the uh, collective agreement, man. And I just knew that you know, I had to fulfill a contract, and I was excited to not only go do the movie, I was also excited about the fact that there was only five people on the plane. So I was like, this will work. 
Um, so um, I got to Las Vegas. We started filming. And then we were shut down immediately the next day because of the issue. Um, and so fast forward to now, since that time, uh, some, some of the restrictions have loosened up a bit. And so I was called to go to Florida about a month and a half ago, another hotspot, to do an independent film. And I agreed to do this against, you know, right reason uh, to place myself in situations of, you know, uh, I guess, of uh, potential uh, contamination. And so I did a film there. I got back. And I'm also off to Las Vegas again to pick up where I left off in the vampire movie uh, in a week, about a week or so. So for me, what I've seen is uh, a playing field, like a battlefield that has uh, definitely obvious dangers about, but then a will to survive and to make a living that, and, and along with other brave souls and creative entities that regardless of what reason suggests, they need to get these movies done. Some of them generally, even though they observe you know, social distancing and, and, and practical application of, of filming in an environment that, you know, prevents the spread, uh, most people would argue that it's still a very risky affair. But for me, it's just an opportunity to, uh, I guess, I don't know, do what's required of me, man. You know, I, I can't help it. So I, for me, it's, it's, it's been uh, pretty auspicious. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. been enjoying it. That's great. On, I, I, thrive on, I thrive on this notion of, this, this, uh, I, tr I guess I, I thrive on the, uh, on the, uh, the dramatic aspect of it, you know, the aspect of it that you know, <laughs> seems dire or you know, a bit uh, you know, unsettling. I mean, it's life, man. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah and I is. feel like life, just, life goes on. Yeah. yeah, it does. It really does, Robert. And I feel like that there just comes a point where we have to take that mentality and just do it. I mean, obviously, I'm certain they're taking the precautions necessary, but for somebody like yourself, who is a celebrity, who is a working actor, you know, you have this integrity and this drive to do what you say you're going to do. And I think that's okay. I appreciate your honesty and the fact that you're willing to just say, you know, we got to get this done because, you know, life does continue. And yeah, we can't just, I mean, obviously some things have had to stop, but I, we were talking just before we started recording about all the beaches are closed this weekend, right? You were saying yeah. you were going to go hiking and now you can't even do that. But I'm glad that you're able to get back to work. I think that's great, you know, because I've talked to other actors and what they have told me, I was talking to Jake Busey and Jake was telling me that there's no, you know, uh, government funding, you know, no extra money here, no unemployment necessarily that you have access to, unless it's different for your situation. But he was like, you know, he has to go through the Screen Actors Guild as far as managing his car payments and all of these different things. And so it's hard for you who who this is your livelihood, right? And so you have to go out there and work and, and, and get this done, if, if I understand correctly. Yeah, it's, it's clearly a situation of do or die. Um, and so unless I'm breaking, you know, law, you know, law suggests, forget, you know, law dictates what can and cannot be done, correct? Yes. So if I'm allowed to get on a plane and fly somewhere and do a job, then I'm going to do it. Clearly, there's certain you know, practices that have to be observed to do things you know, within the requirements of what 
the health of issues, the health officials are um, communicating to the public. So those things have been observed. And so if there's a crack for me to get through, I'm going to get through it. Right? <laughs> I love um, it. Well, it's just, you know, I mean, the business for me, I don't enjoy aspects of nepotism or a last name that suggests links to something that will always provide security in an industry where there is none. So I've never been afforded uh, a, a kind of circumstance in the competitive, monstrous nature of industry that was uh, that you know, showed me any semblance of security. So whether there's a pandemic or not, it always has felt to me like a very unsettling affair, you know, battling constantly to maintain some type of positioning so that I can make a simple living. Um, forget wow. about you know, any kind of pipe dream about becoming a movie star or fame and fortune learning, these, these things that to me are a week of narcissism. I'm talking about just being an artist who wants to create and collaborate with others and be able to pay the bills. So when that becomes, you know, the most important thing in terms of fortifying one's existence, then you do what's required to survive. At least I do. Yeah. And wow. Here's the thing. Not every, but not every performer does this. I've no. heard for, for certain, there's certain actors that will not go on set right now. I have producer friends of mine that have access to money, opportunities to get movies going, but the fear factor is so great. And in terms of what the risks suggest, that there are actors that refuse to work right now because they don't even want to put themselves in a situation where they could potentially, you know, catch catch the virus or get sick or anything. So it's not just that the governing entities are controlling the realm and no one can move. It's that people, there are certain people, and in their mentality are adhering to that fear or to he- adhering to that uh, perception of how things need to be and, and complying to such degree that they're creating a situation of impotence, meaning they, they're producers that can't afford to wait around, don't have $10 million to sit on, and they need to work now, are, are kind of, I guess, to some extent, maybe throwing caution to the wind for the sake of eating and paying their rent so they, they don't end up homeless. But some of the people they're dealing with that are in positions of wealth and can sit around for a year or two and observe this thing in a comfortable position can do just that. Some of the rest of the rest of us are not afforded that luxury to, you know, to be so uh, responsible. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, that makes perfect sense to me, my friend. And yeah. you're not the first person to say that because it's yeah. not like you just sit at home and just get piles of scripts in the mail and just fan through them and go, Nope, 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 Nope. If you're coming at this from a creative perspective and as a general collaboration, then you have to obviously choose projects that make sense to you, but at the same time, look at it and go, I have to work, I have to pay my bills, I have to eat, and uh, you're just getting it done. And that's very admirable. I, I find that so respectful. And uh, And also the thing that I like about what you said is that you don't rest on the nepotism or the laurels of things that you've done in the past, right? So going all the way back to, you know, nip tuck or weeds or, I mean, the list goes on and on of the things that you've done and you don't just rely on that to kind of give you a pass, if I understand what you're saying correctly, but you... Yeah, exactly. Or justify my existence. With, right. With the, so, you know, that TV commercial, so to speak. Yeah, yeah I mean, because you've done so many things and I want to talk about just 
so many different things. And, and I appreciate, again, your honesty on all of that. But I don't want to bury the headline here because you began your career studying at the High School of Performing Arts in New York. And then you were in the Navy, which is great. I'm a veteran myself. So thank you for your service. Wow. Oh, right on. <laughs> yeah, I was in the Air Force for eight years. Yeah, wow. so, yeah, wow. for eight years. And uh, it Good paid stuff. for my school. <laughs> so yeah. I'm thankful for that. But then you kind of continued on, and you went to the Stellar Adler Studio of Acting, which is one of the most recognizable names in training. So I want to ask you, and I've read your book, by the way, which I know is a couple years old, but Life Sentence, A True Story About Love, lunacy and fame which i've read it cover to cover a couple different times to prepare for our interview and i just find your story so beautiful because you first of all let's talk about you know we kind of know why you started to get into acting you were given some opportunities uh with steven seagal and that kind of boosted you forward a little bit but what about that world interested you the most like why why acting out of all the different things you know that you could have done why did you sort of decide to go down that particular path because obviously fame none of that was of interest to you money but you had something else that drove you for those who haven't read the book what made you want to go into this crazy world of acting reclamation that's the word that occurs to me reclamation it was a desire for me to reclaim something and i think what that was, was a sense of innocence, where people consider their truest self, you know, um, their soul. There are, you know, the aspect of being that isn't necessarily defined by the physical. It's a tendency that maybe you're born with or one that you cultivate throughout time. What I observed when I was a young man, a teenager in New York City growing up, is that there was a tempestuous tendency that tend to lead down roads of destruction and you know, kind of stuff that I'm not proud of. And while that was going on, I was fortunate to be in the presence of teachers who helped guide me uh, and, and express concern about my life and also this drama that I was experimenting with uh, on the streets, so to speak became cathartic when I recognized that I could apply that aggression, that energy, um, like a lot of young men and women on a stage and, and, util and utilize it to do something productive rather than destructive. So that's the genesis of it. It was a, a catharsis. It was a saving grace to have a couple of people in my life that detoured me off a path that was you know, leading to my ruination, the ruin of me. And so I think that ultimately is the thing that stuck most. It was a spiritual uh, type of relationship that would evolve over time that I wasn't completely ready to embrace because I, despite performing arts, to despite the relationships I had with teachers and performing arts and other actors and the joy of performing on stage, there was still this relentless tendency that seemed to want to explore further paths around the world, thus the Navy, going into the military, um, the decorative uh, preoccupation, uh, I guess you could say hobby of tattoos, uh, this idea of what being a man is. 
identity, you know, a lot of things that young men and women struggle with in terms of identity to find themselves, you know, so that maybe they can ultimately let go of themselves and be born again into a type of understanding that's something that's much more substantial, substantial than just a predictable pattern based on, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, some type of condition, conventional con- conditioning. So the stage, the performing arts, people who carry that faith I found fascinating especially after I had joined the Navy and had a lot of time overseas to reflect on those experiences at school so when I was discharged from the military there was this incredible desire to reclaim here's that word again reclaim something that to me uh, was innocent and is innocent in terms of true identity, and to move from that point, that position, to just apply that uh, to a, you know, a much more pragmatic and practical aspect of training and to continue on the vocation of you know, performing arts and just, you know, to go to the Stellar Advocate Conservatory, to study at the Actors Studio as a working observer, to you know, dive into all these uh, things, these, these, these um, this, this fascination that I had kind of put on ice or put in the freezer for a while to be visited at a later date. Once I thawed that out and looked at it, I realized that I had denied myself something, but I had needed to deny myself something so I could burn out the tendencies that needed to be looked at and discarded ultimately. Because had not I done that, I would have probably destroyed myself. So I needed to find a way and kind of create this disciplinarian in my head and put myself in the military as a way to recognize a kind of tough love to, you know, embrace responsibility, not just let the mad, not let the madman take the wheel, so to speak, like so many young men who grew up in impoverished situations that are led by, you know, primal tendencies and aggression that ultimately destroy their lives. So the military definitely created structure for me, imposed a structure on me that I could not negate. And once I had that discipline, time's desire and love affair with the art form, it was a very, it still is a very formidable combination to keep me focused and give me direction and how to uh, be adamant about continuing to fight for that. Wow. I love that. I think that is so fantastic. And the fact that that is what has driven you to such a, a successful career, in my opinion, because you've done so many different things. And that leads me to my next question, because, and I've, I've heard this in other interviews, and I want to really get into the beef of this and the muscle of this topic of good versus evil, especially portrayed in films, and the balance between characters because it's no secret, I mean, you've done so many different things, and I've seen a lot of your work, and it's typically, I think I saw you in The Mule, I saw you in, oh God, which is probably one of my favorites movies of all times. I mean, I love everything, but that one stands out to me. Of course, you know, there's other things that you've done, but it's it's we've seen you in this particular type of role as the bad guy, so to speak, and I and I that's not how I define you, so I want to be clear about that. However, you're really good at it. And so when I see you in all these different roles, I don't see the same person or the same 
character. I see everything that you do is so nuanced and so different. And so when you come into these roles, whether you're a vampire or, you know, the killer in CSI Miami, whatever the case might be, every single time it's completely different. So I, I set that question up with that preface. So I would like to talk about this. When you are approaching a role, how do you decide this is how I'm going to, well, let me back up a little bit. That's the beauty of recording. So I can rephrase questions if I need to, because I want to be clear. Um, I think the idea of bad guy is a negative term when it comes to characters in a films, because I feel like sometimes the bad guy isn't necessarily the bad guy, right? Like he might have other things going on. He might be misunderstood a little bit, or there's more to it than what meets the eye, right? If that makes any sense. So when you so when you are approaching these types of roles, how do you go about it and decide? I don't want to make this character like every other single one that I've done, but I want to nuance it differently. How do you make your choices, and how do you understand that character and decide this is how I'm going to approach this particular type of role? I feel that there are various influences that determine how I'm going to incarnate, portray these characters. And what I mean is the text itself, the writer's interpretation or the writer's vision. Um, There's variables that um, lean me in directions that either make sense or don't. And what makes sense is an opportunity to do my job and to which is to bring to life something in the mind or the imagination of someone other than myself. So when I read the script, I read the story, I read the character description, I read it several times, over and over and over, I read it over and over again. And what happens is, is that as you read things, you know, the imagination kicks in. And so you start making your own movie. You know, you see things. You see the landscape. You see the setting that the character lives in the character inhabits, you see the other people, the other characters in the story. And so they just start to stand up off the page in two dimensions. And next thing you know, you're in it. At least I am. And so the imagination is key in terms of how I'm influenced by that betrayal. And a lot of it has to do with the writing. You know, and if it's if it's well written, then I'm in good shape because I have a lot to work with. If there's gaps in the writing or things that aren't necessarily um fleshed out and there's, you know, the character arc is fully developed, then I'm given another opportunity to add my own, as you say, nuance to that, to life experience. If I've had an experience that's similar to what I'm reading, if I haven't, then I rely on other methods, which is uh, this kind of vast memory bank, this vast knowledge that houses this memory bank of Film history, man. I've watched so many movies over the years. You know, I was a student of film noir, 1940s filmmaking, you know, back in the day. Uh, mystery thriller, the 1970s were also a really fascinating year, a fascinating decade uh, for filmmaking. So I, I have a lot of material, you know, a lot of reference for stuff to assist uh, my, you know, my process in creating something. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, why limit yourself? You know, why why stick to 
I mean, clearly, you know, the governing entities of the imaginations that are employed by businessmen in Hollywood have a certain frame that they tend to build around me. And I recognize that. And I, I respect the frame. I understand how, the, I understand that it's a visual medium. And people are trained by various mythologies to react to things that appear a certain way. The physics, you know, a female, uh, you know, a young female, a young man, uh, you know, it's a, it's a visual medium. So it's generally speaking, if you look at the golden age of Hollywood, the attractive element is something that's a key selling point. People want to look at beautiful things. They want to be taken away to fantasy, away from the, I guess, what they perceive to be the mediocrity of their lives. So in that sense, Hollywood or the mechanism is given the task to elevate a life experience above, you know, the, 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 this, you know, this mundane, you know, kind of uh, you know, boring existence. So in that sense, the characters they create may seem, be, to see, may seem by the outward appearance to be somewhat artificial, you know, and every, as, you know, back in those days. And so, but that tradition, I think, carries on in terms of the bankability and the importance of something to look at that's either beautiful, evocative, or controversial, something that gets the blood moving, that gets the adrenaline going, that makes the, the individual that feels kind of dominated by a, the gravity of a, of a heavy existence. There's just like magical portal that opens up and they can escape into this world where, you know, people appear somewhat more uh, fantastic than they do in everyday life. And I think this is where you get into kind of a challenging situation with character development because, you know, you want to keep things realistic, you know, the draw, the, you know, actors or writers or people that are moved by the sense of realism to authenticate human experience and, and place them in extraordinary circumstances so that people can be moved or inspired by what they're witnessing. There's a manipulative element to that, though, because you still, you know, I think people that understand business and what sells recognize that the visual aesthetic, what someone looks like, is also a part of that apparatus. So that I think I recognize that this frame, once again, that's built around me is indicative of that. And so if I have tattoos, if I look a certain way, if I'm a certain height, then they categorize me and they categorize everybody. You know, this idea that there's typecasting, I think casting in general hinges on the notion of typecasting because it puts people in categories based on appearance and what people identify various people in, in, the, in, the, in the frame of culturism, uh, orientation, how that appears is, is, is a big part of how they construct this notion of collaboration and how the, the cast appears before the audience to satisfy the, 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 the fantasy, to satisfy the political agenda at that time, to satisfy a few variables. So I'm, I'm kind of consigned to a, a blueprint of business that doesn't encompass necessarily the, you know, the purest form of creativity. It's, it's, a, it's a form of manipulation of fantasy. Even the films that appear to be realistic in their portrayals of, you know, true grit, grit type characters that are moving toward this kind of nefarious circumstance that are fighting with swords or guns or whatever the, the genre is, 
there is a manipulative element in play if you look closely in terms of the appearance. And so when you start to understand that part of it, you don't really get too upset about how they frame you. You, you play within that diagram. You understand that there's a work order to sell a product. And the best that you can hope for is that there's a writer and producer director person that will allow you the full range to authenticate that, that character as realistically as it can be allowed to manifest in an artificial world. You know? So even what's considered to be realistic is not. It's a lie. It's manipulative. It's, it, it's a, it's an, a, it may encompass a certain aspect of what we perceive reality, reality to be. But let's face it, if movies reflected day-to-day reality, nobody would watch them. <laughs> no. Most people watch films to get away from that, and they want to see a much more enhanced version of that landscape and see characters that embody qualities that they can relate to, that they can root for, whether it's the good guy, the bad guy, the good girl, the bad girl, whatever they're rooting for, they can identify with. So they feel that they're living in that fantasy and taking that ride and escaping their life for, for a couple hours. So it's important, I think, to realize that it's a psychological kind of play that, you know, that pulls focus uh, uh, because of how things appear. And, and, and that needs to be remembered. And so for me, uh, I look in the mirror, I recognize the work order, and I understand that, you know, based on what the physics the physical suggests, they may have a tendency to continue to recreate this idea of whatever. And so then what I do is I borrow from, you know, from movie history. I borrow from my own life experience. I borrow from my imagination. And I also utilize what's on the printed page and the imagination of those who build the frame around me. But the frame may present me. It doesn't necessarily define me. Or what I'm thinking, meaning I can be in front of the camera and not be saying anything, yet people can experience a history and an inner dialogue that's going on that communi- communicates itself in the way that my eyes manifest a disposition that can be quite effective without using dialogue. It's kind of like the same principle when a person walks into a room and there's other people and they observe the, the vibration of that individual and they're affected by it, but there's no words being spoken. And it could be a positive disposition. It could be a negative disposition. It can, it can have various qualities that indicate something that's mysterious, but there aren't always words spoken. Once I realized that I didn't have to rely on dialogue and the costume that I was framed in to communicate another aspect of character that they had not afforded me in the writing, that I had a playing field that I can utilize, that can convey something more than what I had been allowed on the page. And people, I think, when they witness my, my portrayals, feel something in what I'm doing. They go, there's something going on here that may or may not pull their focus in and stay with them because that's my, that's my spirit. That's my thought. That's something that I bring in my own uniqueness that everyone has. That's not defined by the frame. And that's what I had to figure out so that I would not allow this idea of limitation in the writing and the way I'm presented to define how I function in, the, in front of the camera. 
You know, they can control what you, it's real simple. They can control what you say, but they cannot control what you think, what you feel, and what the spirit communicates. And in that sense, the camera needs that. The camera sees that. And there's no escaping it. That's why sometimes people can go on and on talking and people fall asleep. And other times there can be a situation where the character doesn't say much. Like in some of the Clint Eastwood movies, that character would just show up and look at someone for a while. And there'd be some background music. And the, the genius of the director would, it was that that director would build the tension based on no words, but on the disposition of character without words. And once I saw that particular method being replicated over and over again in various types of movies and, and, and different genres, I found, I thought, okay, I know what to do now. I know exactly what to do and how to expand on oppor- and utilize opportunities that don't seem like an opportunity to the average person. You can say, well, look at the character they gave you, Lasardo. There's not much here. And I go, oh, there's plenty there. If they give me an opportunity to stand in front of that camera and take a couple of moments to look around and, and eat up the scenery, and allow a whole history of my life plus my imagination and what the character is, people will feel that. Even if it's two seconds, five seconds, they'll go, whoa, who's that? And that's the magic of disposition of character. That's what they teach you in school, which is to when you show up on stage, you don't just appear in that moment. You bring with you a whole history of experience that resonates you off of you, like a, like a, a smell of a fabric of clothes. People feel that, they sense it, they see it, they know it, if it's real. And I, and I think that's the key. That's the trick, so to speak. Wow, that is amazing. And I feel like subtext also plays a large part in your role approach and how you decide to do things. And I mentioned The Mule because that's the most recent thing that I've watched because of lockdown. And I tell you, Clint Eastwood is not also one of my favorite actors, but directors in your part in that film. And I find myself too, in some of your roles actually rooting for you and hoping that things work out well for you. (laughs) If that makes any sense based on all of those things that you just described, because you want to root for that type of character a lot of times, because it brings forth so many of the things that you just mentioned and all of that sort of thing. And it really just kind of, just soaks everything in and you're there. Like I feel like when I watch you on screen, I'm hypnotized in a way. And now that you've explained all of that, I understand it a little bit better because of all the things that are going on inside of your head and what you're trying to do to portray that character. Because I can imagine, you know, like your friends might say, you know, you get this role and you're like, Oh, it's okay. It's another, this or another, that, but that's not your attitude at all by any stretch of the imagination. This Each one of these is a new adventure and a new creative process, right? This is a blank slate, so to speak. And you approach it like it's the first time you've ever done it. And I love that. I think that's spectacular. And uh, I'm just looking forward to more of what you do. One last question here as we wrap up, Robert. And this has just been such a very meaningful and deep conversation. So again, I thank you for your time. Since you began until now, how has the industry changed from when you first started to now as far as like approach to roles or reading for roles or getting started? 
whether it's for good or for bad, how, how, from your perspective, Robert's perspective, has it changed? Well, recently, you know, we've all been challenged socially by what has been witnessed on the streets and the media and, you know, the civil unrest. And so certain archetypes are, I guess, I don't know, modes of thinking are being challenged. You know? Statues are being thrown down. So these role models or icons or whatever you, whatever, whatever you want to call it, I've been called into, called into question. You know? um, this idea of good guy, bad guy, right? It's kind of a, there's a lot of gray when you witness things that demonstrate that what appears to be good doesn't always function in a proper way. Right? So then I think it's the same thing with the industry. That maybe years ago, you know, when I'd show up for an audition and the casting director would look me up and down and say, oh, the messenger entrance is not that. I'd say, look, I'm not here to deliver a package. I'm here to audition. And I think the perception has a lot to do with the program, right? People are trained to believe certain things for various reasons. And they project that onto other people. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with what they've been trained to believe about life themselves and other people. And we see that played out in, in the world theater, sometimes in a very ugly, frightening manner. It's unfortunate that it has to play out so drastically for people to wake up and realize that you know, human beings need to be treated with respect and dignity. Um, I think that it's the same for me now casting that people are not so frightened when they see the tattoo plan show up because so many of the young people know this in the last 10, 15 years have been ornamenting themselves. And so this is social phenomenon, this explosion of expression that is, uh, makes someone look like, you know, someone like me appear to be kind of commonplace, which is kind of cool for me. It's, I can walk around and not have people throw rocks at me anymore. I mean, psychically. Um, so I feel much more ease um, in the profession because what I've noticed is that some of the younger filmmakers now are much more open-minded because of this generation's thinking that they allow me characters or allow me to portray characters that 20 years ago were unthinkable. Uh, so I'm grateful that things have changed and that the writers are courageous enough now to allow character development, sympathetic characters, despite what years ago my appearance suggested. I was told by various agencies that I could become a movie star if I would laser my tattoos off my arms and neck and basically just burn them all off. And I would be, be shocked at how much work I would get. And I remember how awful I felt about come, having to face a kind of suicide in order to uh, appear relevant in the marketplace. So fast forward into 2020 and uh, when I tell people that, they're kind of shocked. Like, wow, they actually wanted to do that? I go, yeah, that was the thinking in those days, you know. And so when people think, well, Robert Lissardo, he's created a niche for himself. I didn't create anything. I just simply, worked, you know, Richard Pryor said to me many years ago, my first film, and this was probably one of the profound experiences I've ever had on a movie set, this iconic, genius, brilliant, humble man took me aside and whispered some things to me I needed to hear early on in my career, early on in my career so that I could feel confident enough to, to face a lot of the injustice and prejudice that I would face. And he said, you know, I'll never forget you know, uh, that experience. My point being that, because um, I said to him, Richard, you know, how do I deal with all the politics? Man? How do I face this? You know? 
I got all these tattoos. And he said, listen, forget the politics, man. Forget all that. So you just tell them you want to jump. Just tell them you want to jump, man. And I said, okay. And then he said some other things that I need to hear. And so my point is, is that here I am in my 50s, looking back on it all. And I'm grateful for everything that's happened. I'm not good. I think it was a really, a very important journey in that sense. And now I'm looking ahead at all sorts of possibilities as, as I see them, not in theory, but actually manifest before my eyes, where there's characters that are dynamic, are sympathetic, intelligent, all the qualities that people had recognized years ago, but were considered a pariah because those qualities were housed in the physics of what, something, what some people consider to be a Frankenstein monster because of the way I look, you know, the look. So now that look is not an issue. And there's no gimmick. If anything, the gimmick was built by others because they, I think maybe, they, I don't know if they felt sorry for me or recognized an ability and they wanted to do me some justice but could not allow the full range of manifestation of ability because the society wasn't ready to look at them. And I think now what I'm seeing is that maybe, or at least for me, there's opportunities for all sorts of things to happen that were not really inconceivable back then. And so I think it's a, it's a really great time in relationship to independent cinema. I'm not talking about the studios. I'm talking about the uh, real radical filmmakers that are courageous and brave enough to go against the grain of what the formula and commercial filmmaking suggests. Because it's always going to be that. I'm not knocking. It definitely serves a place, serves a purpose and has its place. But I just think it's wonderful that there's so much opportunity now for people to get involved in collaborative type situations that want to express, uh, I don't know, their unique identity, you know, uh, whether it's a sexual preference, a, a gender, uh, a, a kind of a, a, a art, an art that's tattooed into their body, whatever that human experience suggests and its difference is not to be condemned and to be set ablaze on fire, like it's some kind of monster, but to be celebrated. Now. And so I'm glad I lived long enough to witness a time where I'm kind of, uh, I'm allowed to be a, a part of something rather than you know, kind of consigned to the dungeons, you know, into the, into the bowels of the prison next to the, you know, the sign that says Charles Manson. You know what I mean? I, I feel that some of us need to be allowed to liberate because we've committed no crime other than to be ourselves. Wow. My goodness, my friend, this has been, I will tell you, one of the best conversations that I've had in a really long time. And I've had some fun ones and some great ones, but this definitely Robert stands out in the books and you are such a philosophical thinker. You are such an existential thinker and getting to know you here in the last 45 minutes has just been an absolute delight for me. And so many great pieces of content that we have uh, for our listeners today. So Robert, with that, I say thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. And I appreciate you taking the time to be so comprehensive and, and, and researching my work, reading my book. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much for having me on your show. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Is it all over, Rock? I guess so. Until next time, cheers. Today's 
episode of the Open Mic Podcast is brought to you by Cheap Seat Entertainment. <laughs> 